of upgrading our family car. Um, I worked out the kind of car we wanted and then I went to the dealership and met a young salesman with whom I formed a, an uneasy relationship. And over the next few weeks he uh, pushed and prodded and I responded in a prickly, unhappy sort of way. But in the end I bought a car from him and it was the first brand new car I've ever bought and it wasn't my intention when I walked in. Uh, so I'm a grumpy customer but in the end I'm a sucker. And the salesman talked a lot about the features of these cars that I was looking at, you know, the sat-nav and the Bluetooth and the climate control, etc. same as many new cars these days. But the feature of our new car that beats perhaps any other car in the market is places to put your drink. <laughs> it's, uh, it's an eight-seater car, but apparently it has ten cup holders and four bottle holders, uh, which is a bit sad and ironic for my children because being a new car, I don't let them take their drinks into the car. <laughs> I make them finish them first so they don't mess it up. But if you uh, take the view that a car is a means of getting from A to B, uh, the obsession with features is a little bit silly. I mean, surely the engine is more important than the cup holders, and yet things like the cup holders are what the salesman wanted to talk about, along with a bunch of all kinds of other guff. Some things are essential and some things are merely additional. And that's why I like Good Friday, not a Sunday, but a Friday. Gee, it feels like a Sunday, doesn't it? Uh, set aside once in the year to go back to the one essential topic, which is the cross. So if the Christian faith is like a car, the cross is the engine. It powers the Christian life. Without the cross, the Christian faith is next to useless, like a car with lots of cup holders but no engine. So if you're going to understand any aspect of the Christian faith you need to understand the cross. And in the Gospel of Matthew, the death of Jesus is described in a way that shows it wasn't like any other death. With uh, many great people who do great things, uh, they do their great things and then they die. But with Jesus, his death was the greatest thing that he did. And it was literally an earth-shattering event, as we read in Matthew. It was the centrepiece of God's plans for the whole world and the climax of all history, as Matthew describes it here. And I think that this account makes that fairly clear. It describes, firstly, what Jesus' death involved, and secondly, what Jesus' death achieved in the features that were given in the story. So there are four features of what it involved and four features in terms of what it achieved. And I think we need to be humbled and amazed by what we read about here in Matthew. I simply just want to talk you through the details of this passage and I hope the significance will become clear. So firstly, what Jesus' death involved. Uh, prior to this in Matthew, Jesus had predicted his death. Uh, he said, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, he sat down with his disciples in the Last Supper, which we've just sort of enacted in a way. He gave his body and his blood to them. Uh, so he predicted his death. And then he let his death happen. Uh, the betrayal, the arrest, the sham trials, the beatings, the mockery, and the crucifixion. And from verse 45, there are four things that signify what was actually happening here as Jesus died. There's the darkness, there's the cry, there's the misunderstanding, and then there's the choice. So first of all, in verse 45, it says, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. 
Now, as with most really big miracles, this gets people's minds working. Often the question of how this could have happened is the first one that pops into our mind. How could darkness come over all the land? Uh, Was it an eclipse? Probably not. Was it a storm or a dust storm? It doesn't really matter. It's not the means of the darkness coming. It was the fact that it came and the significance of it. Now, much of the significance, I think, comes from an Old Testament prophecy in Amos, Amos chapter 8, a chapter about the day of God's judgment coming on, this, on his greedy, corrupt people. A day of mourning, a day of turmoil, a day of bitterness. And Amos chapter 8, verse 9 says, In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And so the darkness here at Jesus' death signifies mourning at the arrival of God's judgment, mourning with the U in it, that is sadness, at the arrival of God's judgment. And uh, just as there were signs in the heavens when Jesus was born, remember the star, now the heavens go dark for his death. You might even say that the creation dresses itself in black um, as it mourns for what we are doing to the Son of God at his death or from another angle you could say that the darkness shows the curse of God being concentrated on this spot in space and time and the fearsomeness of God's judgment as it arrives here at this moment in Joel 2 it says the day of the Lord is a day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and blackness and so here it is and at the center of it all Jesus hangs dying on the cross So there's the darkness. And then we have the cry in verse 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew gives us the actual words in Aramaic, the language in which they were probably spoken, and then a translation of those words because these words are so significant. And they are significant because they tell us what Jesus was experiencing here. And in a word, what he was experiencing was hell. Um, You might remember the Apostles' Creed in which we say he descended into hell. I take that to mean not that he went to hell after he died, but that he went to hell as he hung on the cross. And that is what is being expressed in this cry. It's often noted that Jesus is quoting from uh, the first verse from Psalm 22 when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Psalm 22 starts with pain and ends with great confidence. And so some even say that Jesus is actually expressing trust here or even triumph on the cross. But it's a pretty funny verse for Jesus to quote from Psalm 22 if he wanted to say something positive. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, I'm sure he knew the rest of the psalm and he knew God's bigger plan. But he quotes this verse because he is in agony. His God has abandoned him. There is darkness all around him and there is darkness inside him as he has lost all sense of fellowship with his heavenly father. And so this is spiritual death which has come before his physical death, you might say. Now, you might think, well, that doesn't sound so bad. But we need to consider that just as Jesus had a unique fellowship with the Father when he was alive, so his experience of abandonment by the Father was also completely unique. 
Um, you might remember that throughout the gospel stories, um, at difficult points in Jesus' ministry, um, angels came and helped him. Uh, God was with him to help him, and angels attended him at various points. But there are no angels here as he hung on the cross to help him, and no sense of God being with him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some people object to this. They say, well, how can the Godhead be divided? We shouldn't say they've been, he's been abandoned. How can God forsake God, they say? How can he have actually been abandoned by God the Father? But we need to remember that whatever punishment our sins deserve from God, our sins, Jesus experienced that here. He is a sacrifice of atonement for our sins as he hangs here on the cross. God's anger at our sins was being concentrated on Jesus here. So however it worked within the Godhead between the Father and the Son, Jesus was forsaken, as he says. There's much mystery here. How does it work? I don't know. So Jesus was all alone. The people around him were enemies or at best detached. God has left him. Even the light of the sun was avoiding him. And maybe this is the essence of hell. Everything flees from you. Uh, and yet, Jesus does not give up his faith. Do you notice whom he addresses here in this verse? He doesn't say, oh universe, why has God abandoned me? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's talking to the God who has abandoned him. God turned his back on Jesus to Jesus' great agony but Jesus continues to face God. In some ways, like Job, whom we studied uh, at this church over the last term, uh, continued to beat on God's door. So Jesus stayed faithful, and yet very, could see, very few could see that he was staying faithful here. And so we have the misunderstanding next in verses 47 to 49. When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Uh, immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. It's possible that the onlookers did mishear what Jesus said when he said, Eloi, Eloi. Uh, they thought he was calling out for Elijah. Um, it was hard to speak when you were crucified, um, hard to get a breath. That is the, the very essence of how you're being killed. And the Jews had this belief based on the Old Testament, which uh, had become like a folklore, that Elijah would come to save the righteous before the day of the Lord. So here they think that Jesus is still claiming to be the Messiah. Uh, they think he's still deluded and still calling on Elijah to come and at the very last minute and bring the day of the Lord. They think it's funny because Jesus, surely it's too late. And yet there he is with hardly any breath left calling for Elijah. They get him a drink to keep him going a little bit longer and watch as he hangs and waits for Elijah to come. Of course, he wasn't calling on Elijah. He was calling on God. But even here in his last minutes, he is misunderstood and mocked. And then after the last piece of humiliation, we have his choice in verse 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit and so Jesus' life was not taken from him, he gave it in the end. Um, as I said, it was hard to get a breath when you were hanging on a cross, but Jesus was not too weak yet to summon a loud cry before giving up his spirit. 
And so we see that his aim was never to save himself or for anyone else to save him. His aim was always to give his life willingly. And so that's what his death involved. He didn't just die for us. He suffered for us. And he didn't just suffer physically. He suffered spiritually and mentally. He suffered hell. He drank the cup of God's wrath all the way down to the bottom. No one has ever suffered like Jesus suffered here because he was a unique person. This was a unique experience and he suffered it for us. And so straight away after this profound description of what Jesus went through, Matthew moves from what his death involved to what his death achieved uh, in verses 51 to 54. And the God who had been so conspicuously absent, in a sense, suddenly bears his arm the moment that Jesus dies. And all kinds of crazy stuff starts happening the moment he dies. And each incident is a sign of what his death actually achieved. So firstly, there is the curtain in verse 51. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And what's being symbolised here is a new access to God. There were uh, two uh, curtains in the Jerusalem temple. There was the one between the court of the Gentiles and the inner court. And then there was the one uh, into the Holy of Holies. And both of these curtains symbolised restricted access to God. Stop here, you can't come any further, depending on who you are and where you fit into the system. Uh, Not just anyone can come close to God. And whichever curtain is meant here that was torn, the tearing symbolises that the old system is over and a new way to God is open. Uh, If Jesus suffered hell for us, then I don't need to pay my dues to some sort of system anymore. All I need is to trust in Jesus. And I don't have to stop halfway to God. I can go all the way to him if he has paid for all of my sins through what he has done. And so this is really a wonderful symbol. The moment that Jesus dies, God grabs the temple curtain and rips it open. He's been waiting for this and he doesn't want to wait another moment. And so I say to you this morning that if you've been keeping your distance from God, maybe you've been wary of what needs to be done about your sin, what would it actually involve for your life if you drew near to God? Uh, Do you need to sort of pay some kind of due to a system? then realise that Jesus has suffered fully for your sin and the way to God for you is now free and open. There is nothing stopping you from coming to God if you've been holding him at a distance up to this point. The curtain is open, access to God is available. The next sign we see here is the earthquake. Um, Lest we think that the death of Jesus is just something that's nice for us, Matthew tells us here that the earth moves on its foundations in response to what Jesus did. Uh, It says the earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. So his death has changed everything and has turned the whole world around. Maybe we could see this as the created order sort of giving a shiver of joy at what Jesus has achieved. It it has realised that God's plan has reached its turning point the earthquake. And that leads to the third symbol, which is the resurrections. In verse 52, it says, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. 
Now, Matthew is the only gospel writer who records this detail along with the earthquake, and some people don't think it literally happened. Um, I don't think there's a good reason for disbelieving that this happened if, if you believe that Jesus is going to rise from the dead as well a little bit later. But it probably happened after Jesus' resurrection that the bodies were raised to life and came out and walked around. But Matthew includes it here um, to show that it's a result of Jesus' death. Now, I have no explanation for what happened to these people after this, whether they went back to their tombs and went back to sleep or whether they were taken up to heaven. Who knows what happened to them? But the significance is clear, and that is that the death of Jesus has cancelled death. That's what we're being told. Notice that it's not just the spirits of these people that were raised to life. It is their bodies that walked around. So this is a complete resurrection that's been won by the death of Jesus. Notice also who is raised here. It's many holy people who had died. That is the old covenant faithful. So we're being shown that the death of Jesus doesn't just cover the people who would believe in him in the future AD, but the death of Jesus has also paid for God's people in the past BC who had been waiting in death for their saviour to come. So it's not just good news for all of creation, it is also good news for all of time. So Jesus saves the Old Testament saints looking back and then we see that he saves the nations looking forward in the next verse which is the testimony. Verse 54, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. So here are pagan soldiers being drawn to the Jewish saviour and they are welcome because the achievement of Jesus' death can't be confined to the Jews. It was for all of us. It was a cosmic event with cosmic effects. Jesus is for everyone. So we've seen what Jesus' death involved, the depths of his suffering, the darkness and the mourning. And we've seen what Jesus' death achieved It cancels sin, it cancels death, it's for God's people in every age and it's for every nation. And so his death is the biggest event since the creation of the world. It's the turning point in the history of the universe, the death of this person on this cross. And so if that's true, the question is, what is the impact of the death of Jesus on you and me? That's really the key question this morning. If we go back to the car idea, then you might say that we have plenty of cup holders in our lives. We have plenty of seat warmers and electric mirrors and Bluetooth and all the other additional features we pack in around our lives. We have lots of comforts surrounding us. And I think sometimes we're fairly obsessed by the features that we can acquire throughout our lives. But the question this is asking us, I think, is what is the driving force? What is under the hood of your life? Um, There's a verse in Galatians 2 in which the Apostle Paul describes what the cross means to him. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, that's what the cross meant to the Apostle Paul. It was the driving force in his life. Uh, the suffering, dying, love of Christ 
was what was under the hood for him. And when we understand the cross and what it involved and what it achieved, it should fill us with wonder, love and praise for Jesus. And that should become the driving force for our lives. And in particular, when you consider that he did this for you, and so in a sense, you did this to him, that's when the cross starts to have a proper effect on us. When you realise that you have sins that you needed to be paid for, um, that you've done things that deserve God's punishment, and when you see that punishment being given to Jesus instead, then that is when the cross starts to have a proper effect in your life. There's an etching by Rembrandt from 1653. I think we have it. There it is. Uh, The scene of Christ's crucifixion, the three crosses. And you can see Jesus in the middle and the two criminals either side and many people gathering around witnessing their deaths, uh, the centurions and other soldiers there and the Jewish authorities and the women crying and weeping and some disciples looking a bit bewildered. Uh, the rest of the crowd who'd come to watch the spectacle. And apparently, art critics say that if you look closely enough at the faces, uh, perhaps towards the edge of the picture in the darkness, you can see the face of Rembrandt himself. I don't expect any of you can recognise him this morning. But Rembrandt placed himself there at the crucifixion of Jesus when he depicted the scene. Apparently, Rembrandt felt such a profound personal connection with what was happening in that scene that he placed himself there in the picture when he depicted it. He felt involved in what Jesus did there. Jesus did it for him. It was his sin that put Jesus through what Jesus went through. And so for the cross to be meaningful to us, for the cross to drive our lives, we need to put ourselves there too. And know that he did this for us. He suffered for us. He died for us. It's our access to God that he won. It's our tomb that he broke open at the point of his death. Well, I wonder how meaningful it is to you. It really should drive our lives. The one who loved us and gave gave himself for us. I'm going to pray that it has a, a profound impact upon us this Friday. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you for the dying love of Jesus, Uh, his love for you and his obedience to you, and his and your love for us in enacting this plan for our salvation. We are very sobered by what Jesus went through on that cross, the agony that he endured for our sakes, the punishment that he endured, which was ours. It's sobering and humbling, Heavenly Father, and we pray that in recognising that he did this for each of us, each of us would respond rightly and deeply to him. We pray that you would help us to live our lives in a way that honours the one who died for us. Help us to trust in him, to serve him, to obey him and to hope in him as we look to the future. We thank you for the wonderful promise and significance that we've seen here in Matthew's account of Jesus' death. Pray that we would make it ours in Jesus' name. Amen.